Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 26th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of uh, financial planning and the financial markets um, and give you our insights from the past week. So good morning to you, Matt. How were uh, how was Christmas yesterday? Good morning, Mark. Christmas was great. As you know, uh, as you can imagine, I should say, the kids got uh, Rachel and I up extremely early, <laughs> made for an extremely early morning, and uh, we were at my in-laws till very, very late last night. So let's just put it this way. Um, I need to get uh, to bed early tonight to recharge the old batteries, my friend. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, that's good. We hope everyone had uh, good holiday um, celebrations the past week, and um, we're back at it here this week on uh, December 26th with another podcast for you guys, the last one uh, for 2019 till we get into 2020. That, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, so as always, we'll run through our normal uh, stuff today. So we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance of the markets that we track for the month and the year. Um, and these numbers are as of the market close on December 24th, and the data is from stockcharts.com. S&P 500 index is up 2.62% for the month and up 28.58% for the year. The Dow up 1.78% for the month and 25.24% for the year. The NASDAQ up 3.32% for the month and 34.93% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 3.41% for the month and 26.15% for the year. The international index, excluding the United States, is up 2.69% for the month and up 18.51% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 1.58%. The two-month, or excuse me, the two-year Treasury. Uh, yield at 1.62% and the 10-year treasury yield is at 1.9%. So we've uh, continued to see uh, yields rise here, Matt, after we got an inversion on the yield curve for a while. Um, so those uh, you know spreads are beginning to, to widen now and we haven't been at 1.9% for a little bit of time uh, on the 10-year. Yeah, I mean, I think a part of that, Mark, is the fact that, you know, stocks are rallying or melting up, per se, into year end. And I think that's a big part of it. It's causing a lot of uh, selling pressure, especially in the farther end of the maturity curve. So, um, you know, it's not surprising to see that go up. I think where it will get headlines, though, Mark, is when it goes above two, just the psychological number of it. And right. you'll start to see headlines of it. Okay. Um, yeah, and as you said, um, you know, the market has continued to melt up into year end and uh, volatility has remained extremely low, um, you know, so in, unless we get some major event or something to trigger over the next three trading days, uh, you know, we should end the year quite, quite strong in all the markets this year. Yeah, and I would expect that. I mean, I think everything that I'm seeing money flow wise um, in the names that have worked well this year, which tend to be more of the larger cap 
um, name brand names. I think they'll continue to get bids into year end. My opinion, just kind of with the money flow that I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah. Um, another news, the Fed continues to provide liquidity to the banks um, to keep uh, overnight rates low. Um, the impeachment news has not affected the markets, Matt. And I mean, I, f- I feel like I kind of saw this coming. It's been in the news for a while, but I think that, you know, the possibility of this is very low, as we talked about last week with, um, you know, Democrats having to turn about 20 senators after a trial um, to, to remove him from office. So I think that the market kind of has the same feeling on that, that it's, it's uh, you know, not uh not probable, I guess. I, I would absolutely agree with that. I think the market is really just ignoring it at this time. Yeah, yeah. And then, as I mentioned, there's three trading days left in the year, um, not counting Thursday. So, um, again, unless we see some sort of major shock over the next uh, few days here, um, you know, it's going to end up being, uh, you know, one of the strongest years in a while for, for the markets in 2019. Yep. And then I'll just throw this out there, Mark. Um, it's a full trading day on New Year's Eve. So it's open. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, moving on to tweets, articles and research from the week that caught our eyes. Um, I saw one, Matt, on the Wall Street Journal on December 18th, and it's titled SEC proposes giving more investors access to private markets. And this was by Paul Kiernan, okay. uh, again, on the Wall Street Journal. And right now, Matt, the way the way the law works now is that to invest in private markets, people must be a accredited investor. Okay, right. so which is defined as one million dollars in net assets, not counting you know your home, um, or more than two hundred thousand in annual income. Um, so you know, being able to, in my opinion, invest in private markets would give more people access to invest in startups like Uber and Facebook back in the day when they were in their infancy before they went public. Um, but you know, the Facebooks and the Ubers and the Lyfts are what's talked about, but sure, people don't understand that they're one in a hundred thousand that most startups fail um and you know people can lose a significant amount of money but when you see and you're only hearing about the successful ones then it then it's more attractive to to investors to be able to have a piece of this before they go public so what is your uh take on this well two things mark first thing that comes to mind is liquidity so um clients don't understand liquidity until they need the money right and so in these types of markets investors have to understand that the secondary market is ruthless. So if you think it's worth $100 and you have to sell it before whatever liquidity event they end up having, you might seriously almost only get 40 or 50 cents on the dollar. And you know that's why if any investor is going to look at these types of markets, they have to be really careful and know that whatever they put in, you, know, you better lock that up for five or 10 years. I mean, you just can't touch it. Yeah, I that's think, a great, great point. And, and I think a lot of investors are are not used to mark that type of ill liquidity. That's the biggest thing that comes to mind. The second thing that comes to mind is usually these types of private markets tend to be feast or famine, as you were alluding to. So you're either going to hit a, a grand slam or you're going to strike out. So, you know, what a lot of really wealthy people do that I have read about is you'll know, make significant numbers of small investments, hoping that a couple you know pan out. Right. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the average individual investor that has a net worth of $2 million doesn't have that luxury when sometimes the minimum investments are, say, $100,000. Right. So I would be very, very cautious. Um, I think this is for the average investor. I would just be careful um, and really know what they're getting into, know what the liquidity is, um, and so forth. Yeah. And I think another thing, too, to keep in mind is transparency. So, you know, a lot of people are used to seeing their IRAs or their um, brokerage accounts, you know, mark to market each and every night. And they they get an updated balance every morning or every night on, you know, where they stand, um, where that's not the case with with private equity. You know, it's it's not it's a lot less transparent. Um, not saying that there's a problem with that. I mean, I think the benefit to private equity, Matt, is it does keep people to be forced to be invested um, and not make emotional decisions. So I think that's a benefit. But again, people need to be um, aware of, as you said, I think the major part of that is liquidity because people just can't call call up the investors or the investment and say, hey, I need, uh, I need to take 50 grand out of this. It's just not how it works. Exactly. Um, so unless you have that that kind of money to to put into something and, you know, let it go until, you know, the investment either succeeds or fails, um, you know, it's just a different animal, I think, that a lot of people aren't used to. But having that said, I don't think people, you know, who aren't accredited investors should be not or shouldn't be able to invest in it. I think people need to be able to make that decision for themselves. Um so I don't know, it's kind of one of those things that's a, a double-edged sword where, you know, there's still people that are smart enough that don't have a net worth of $1 million or income of 200000 that I think that can, you know, make smart decisions about this stuff. But, um, you know, again, it's just one of those things where you got you to gotta educate yourself before you, you know, jump head in into one of these investments. I absolutely agree. And I'm glad you brought this, this uh, article up, Mark. Yeah. Um, so. Go to 2020 and 2021, Matt. Um, and just to say, I'm uh, remote from the office right now, and Matt's in the office. So if the audio is a little wonky or doesn't sound as great for this podcast, that is the reasoning. Um, but we'll be back on our normal uh, mics here coming up next week. So I apologize for any bad uh, audio this week. Um, but yeah, Matt, going over to uh, 2020 and 2021, I know you'd like to talk about things that the news per se isn't talking about. And I know you have something uh, this week that you want to share. Yes, I have a couple things, Mark. First thing about 2020, 2021, that I think no one's really talking about, like potential market risk, is things that have to do with the European Union. Specifically, Mark, it's going to be Italy. And with uh, Britain leaving the EU, that's a little different because Britain, in my view, Mark, is self-sustaining on their own. They can raise debt uh, they have their own currency that they've maintained outside the European Union. There is a big, big populist movement right now going on in Italy. And there is a big push uh, from a lot of different parts of Italy to leave the European Union. The issue I have with that is this. The last several years, people have been borrowing money um, specifically Italian banks, as if they were explicitly backed by the European Union. So very, very low interest rates. If they leave the European Union, that backing goes away. And that could potentially cause a 2008 Lehman Brothers type event for the financial markets. 
Now, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but this is a black swan potential risk that no one's talking about, in my view. So this is something behind the scenes that we watch very closely for our clients in our practice. If we start to see this gaining ground as a as more of a probability, you know, we're going to act accordingly in our client accounts. But it's just one of those things I would tell listeners to really keep your ears to the ground on, because when someone looks at me and says, Matt, what's the potential next Lehman Brothers type event no one's talking about, Mark? This is it. Okay. And who, I mean, what type of investments do you think are going to be impacted the most by something like that happening? So it's definitely going to be equities. It's going to be things that have to do with debt. Um, see, a lot of these banks, and this is why I think the Fed has stepped in in September and started doing this overnight lending rate, is I think a lot of American banks are not doing cross-lending with Europe right now. And, um, you know, I think equity markets would take a hit, and I think it would cause another um, global recession. Uh, do I yeah. think it would be as bad as 07, 08? No. But, you know, you're definitely talking a global recession if that were to happen. My opinion. Now, do I think the probability of this is high? I don't, because at the end of the day, I think the Italians will realize that it's not realistic. All they're going to do is shoot themselves in the foot um, from an, an economic standpoint. But it's still it's still a risk that we have to be cognizant of. Is that fair to right. say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then another note from Barron's on uh, 2019 Treasury yield forecast. I know that I, uh, you know, gave forecasts a, a pretty good beating last week in our podcast because I'm not a huge fan of them. So I'm interested to see what you have to we have to say about this one, Matt. All right. So here we go. So this is from Barron's, Mark. Last week, Mark, you talked about Wall Street forecast for, you know, the S&P 500 index targets for the current year that we're finishing up, 2019, right? Mm -hmm. So this time I want to highlight targets that market strategists had for the 10-year Treasury yield. So a year ago, and the specific date mark is December 17th, Barron's published their year-end 2019 forecast for yields on the 10-year Treasury note. Ten Wall Street strategists predicted that the yield would go higher. So on December 31st of last year, the yield on the 10-year was 2.68%. You said this morning it's at 1.9, right? That's right. So all 10 were dead wrong. Exactly. Exactly. And so this kind of goes back to our conversation that we had last week about those S&P 500 index targets. You know, my opinion is listeners, you can only take these opinions as a data point. You mm -hmm. can't sit there and say, well, I respect XYZ Bank and their market strategist says that the target for whatever investment is this and I'm going to make my whole investment thesis that. You had 10 people, 10 out of 10, were wrong on this last year. Right. Right. It's just, um, I don't know. I just, I, I guess I just don't understand people still still doing this. I mean, I guess it gets a lot of a lot of attention in the media and stuff. But, you know, these, these, these people that are making these uh, predictions, you know, I don't know what they're going off of. But most of the time, they're dead wrong, you know. And that's the perfect example of it with the Treasury yield forecast. So, um, you know, when people say, well, you know, I heard someone talking the other day on, on, you know, CNBC about, you know, they think it's going to be a down year for the market. So, you know, what do you, you think we should sell some stocks and buy some bonds or, and it's just, it's hard to have those conversations because, 
you know, I would encourage people to go back and look at these so-called strategists or economists and see what they've called in the past and what their track record is and what they're basing these these predictions on. So, um, again, just going back to the fact that, you know, me and you, Matt, we take what the market gives us and we act upon upon that at that point in time. And, and we continuously um, readjust that. Right. Right. So no, I'm glad you brought that up to just to highlight another point on uh, forecasts that have gone wrong. Yep. All right. I got one more fun one for you. You're going to love this. So fun fact, the U.S. government has paid $376 billion in interest on outstanding debt mark in 2019. That's a little over a billion dollars a day. Any comment? Wow. That's crazy. Um, you know, I think for a while, my, you know, my personal opinion is that, you know, the government has, has gone on a debt binge for quite some time to fund all of their spending. And, um, that, that's a big number, Matt, you know, $376 billion in 2019. That's, that's not a small number. So what happens Um, when rates go up? Exactly. So the, it's going to become extremely more expensive to service this debt. And, you know, at what point is the tipping point? I know I don't know and I know that you don't know, but I think that there there will be a point where, you know, it's going to be a huge problem. Um, And I think that, you know, regardless of whatever side on the political aisle you're at, I mean, some of this government spending is going to begin to get out of control. Um, And what that looks like when it does, I don't know. But I don't (laughs) uh, just my opinion on it. I don't think it's going to be good. No, I mean. So when this conversation comes up, everyone kind of uses the most extreme example that's live today, which is Japan. And they are approaching 250% debt to annual GDP. And to give listeners an analogy, the U.S. is right around 100% uh, debt to GDP uh, right now. So when someone says, well, how much more can they go? You know, people right now use the extreme example of Japan and say, well, they're at 250 percent debt to GDP. So we have a lot more we can go. That might be true. It might not be true, as you alluded to. But at some point down the road, there will be a tipping point. I mean, because the mere fact that eventually they're going to have to print money to do this is going to cause what? Inflation. Mm-hmm. And at what point is that something that's not controllable by our government because they're going to have to raise interest rates? to counteract that inflation. And guess what? That makes their borrowing costs go up. Right. You so know, so you're just, you're fighting fire with fire and uh, that's not a good, that's not going to have a good outcome. No, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. All right. point, I, good point I, there. I just thought it was a fun fact. A billion yeah. dollars day of interest by the treasury department. It's a lot of money. A lot it's of money. A lot of money. All right. I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, so for the financial planning topic of the week, um, it's a pretty pretty big deal what's going on right now. So um, the Secure Act was passed through the House and the Senate and signed by President Trump um, over the past week. So for people that don't know what the Secure Act stands for, it's the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act of 2019. And this, in my opinion, Matt, is the most sweeping you know, legislative act in our industry in quite some time. Um, and I wanted to you know, take some time today and point out some of the things that this act addresses uh, in our industry, because I think sure. it's going to affect a lot of people. I do, too. Um, so there's a couple different 
uh, things. And I'm not going to go over everything today, just kind of some of the highlights that I think that most people are going to care about. Um, but there is a lot more to this act than what we're going to talk about today. Okay. Um, so starting with some newer IRA rules. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is the elimination of the lifetime stretch provision for non-spouse beneficiaries of an inherited IRA account. Um, so typically, Matt, as you know, if, for example, um, if my grandpa um, left me an IRA um, and I was the beneficiary on that account when he passed away, then, you know, I in the past was able to just take an RMD every year and just keep the account invested. That's right. Well, now, starting in 2020, if you inherit an IRA from someone other than your spouse, you will have only 10 years to completely empty that account. So again, previously, a beneficiary was just required to take an RMD every year, which stands for Required Minimum Distribution, from the account, but it wasn't required to completely empty it. Um, so now there's no longer an RMD for the beneficiary, but the, the IRA must be emptied by the end of the 10 years from the inheritance. Okay. Yep. Yep. So there's five exceptions to this rule, however. Number one is obviously the surviving spouse. So if you have a spouse um, and one of them passes away, the other is the beneficiary of the account that spouse can treat that as it was their own, right? Got it. So they don't yep. have to they don't have to completely empty the account by 10 years. So that's the um, same. So two, if the beneficiary is disabled, three, if the Benny is chronically ill, four, if the Benny is not more than 10 years younger than the person that passed away, or five, if the Benny is minor children. Um, and again, this only applies to beneficiaries who inherit inherit IRAs um, after 2020 begins. This is not retroactive. So if you are the owner of a beneficiary IRA, you can proceed as is and not have to deplete the account in 10 years. That's big. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably the biggest one. Biggest one for people, Matt, is that, you know, 10 year distribution cap. Okay. That's, that, hey, I love it. I mean, from the aspect of them grandfathering it, that's big. Am I yeah. happy about the elimination of the lifetime stretch? No. no. Yeah, exactly. So um, again, so the next one the that I want to talk about is um, RMDs for IRAs required to start at age 72 instead of 70 and a half. Okay. So um, previously, when you turned age 70 and a half, you had to take your first required minimum distribution um, in the following year. So instead of being at 70 and a half, they are bumping that age back to 72, which I don't have a problem with. I think that's good. Um, people, you know, if you don't need your income at that or excuse me, income from your accounts at that point, then um, that's a good thing. So I think that's a positive. Um, the next thing is that uh, this act removed the limitation of contributing to an IRA based on your age. So previously, like previously, Matt, if you were older than 70 and a half, you could no longer contribute to an IRA regardless if you were working or not. OK, so as long as someone has earned income 
um, and you're older than 70 and a half now, you can still contribute to an IRA, which I think, again, is a great thing because I know a lot of people who are working well into their 70s now. Um, and I think it's more common than it used to be. So I think that this update is is definitely a positive. So um, for listeners, you have to have earned income, though, to be able to contribute to IRAs. Um, and if you only earn $4,000 in one year, then you can only contribute $4,000 to the IRA account. So, so earned um, income is going to be stuff like W-2, you've been 1099, you're self-employed. Mm-hmm. This cannot be passively earned income from like investments or social security as an example. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. So um, another benefit I think I think to this act. Um, the last one for IRAs that I wanna talk about, Matt, is that there is now a $5,000 qualified birth or adoption distribution. That's so, great. So to my understanding, if you have a child or you adopt someone younger than 18 years old, that you can take $5,000 out of your IRA and avoid the 10% penalty for being younger than 59 and a half. Yeah, it still could be taxable, but they get rid of the penalty. Exactly, which I think which I think is a good thing, especially with the costs that come along with, with having a kid or adoption and child Absolutely. care. I think, I think that's a good thing. Um, but the $5,000 cannot be before the child is born. So again, this is just to my understanding and my translation of, of the verbiage in this act, Matt, but the, the kid um, needs to have a social security number. Got it. Um, and I believe that each parent uh, can take advantage of the 5K distribution penalty free. So if both spouses have an IRA, they can take a total of $10,000. Got it. Um. So yeah, so I think most of the stuff for IRAs is good. Um, just personal opinion, I'm not a fan of eliminating the stretch provision. Um, you know, I I don't like that, but I think overall, I think three out of the four that we talked about are are good for for the majority of people. Excellent. Yeah. Um, a four four one k provision that I want to talk about, Matt, um, which is big for part time employees. So, um. What the act defines as long-term part-time employees who work at least 500 hours in at least three consecutive years will be eligible to participate in their employer's 401k plan. I think that's great. Yeah, I think it is too, because I think there's a lot of people that do a lot of part-time jobs. You know, they'll have three or four maybe part-time jobs, but they're not eligible for a lot of the benefits and, you know, that hurts people. So I think that, you know, this is this is definitely something that's very, um, very good for part-time employees who have shown that they're hardworking and loyal to their employers, um, that they're eligible to participate in their retirement savings plan. I think that's great. I mean, sometimes you see people that have you know, two or three part-time jobs or one full-time job and a little bit part-time, it allows them to still, you know, participate in saving for their retirement. They have the potential to get a match if the company offers it, Mark. I think that's great. Yeah, I think it is too. Um, The last thing I want to talk about, Matt, is um, qualified education expenses. Okay. So for, uh, for 529 plan funds, um, you can now use those funds for paying off student loans and apprenticeships. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Um, again, the way I translated the verbiage in this act, up to ten thousand dollars of five twenty nine plan money can be used to help pay off student debt. However, this is a lifetime max, so it's not like ten thousand dollars a year. It's ten thousand dollars, you know, out of the account to help pay off your student loans. Um, but there is another upside to this, Matt. An additional 10000 can be used to pay off student loans for each of the 529 plans, uh, Benny's siblings, right? So if I, if I had a 529 plan and my two brothers, uh, you know, had a 529 plan and I still had money in my account, I could use 10000 to pay off some of my student loans and then I could use 10000 for each of my brothers to help them pay off student loans too, which is a good thing. Well, as we dig into this, you know, the way my mind works, I'm thinking people will open up a 529 if their state offers a tax credit mark, they might make the contribution to get the tax credit and then immediately, whatever time period, you know, they use it to pay off the student loan. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people are going to start doing that now. Yeah. Um, we, I, I don't, you and I don't have the, the details about that yet, but I'm just, this way my mind works. I'm thinking, okay, I could see someone trying to work the system on this one. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, and you know, I, I mean, I think this is a better way to do it than I know. I think it was uh, Senator uh, Rand Paul was uh, for putting a provision in where people could take money out of their IRAs or 401ks to help pay down student loans. I think this is a, a much better way to do that, Matt, because the way I look at it is IRAs and 401ks are meant for retirement savings. Retirement. Yes, it's sir. Not we talked meant, about this before. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why there's limitations on, you know, you, you can't take money out before 59 and a half unless it's a qualified event without getting penalized. So I think that this is a, a good way to provide people more flexibility in in paying off student loans and it provides more of an incentive for for parents or grandparents to open up these type of accounts for their children or their grandchildren because you know you can do a lot more with it now love it yeah um so those are all of the things that i just wanted to touch on matt i'm sure you know in episodes into next year we'll get more into a lot of the the stuff that um, is going to make a change in a lot of people's lives. But those were the big ones that I saw that I wanted to kind of address for, for people. Sounds great, man. No, I think it's a great podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, me too. A uh, good way to, to end out the year. And we don't have any questions, um, from anyone, uh, this, this week, Matt. So is there anything else you want to add before we, uh, call it a day here? No, uh, we're going to be recording again next Thursday is the game plan. We'll kick off 2020 right. Um, I wish everyone a very, very safe uh, New Year's Eve. And uh, we'll be talking to you at the beginning of 2020. And Mark, I'll send it back to you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the 26th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast and the last one for 2019. And, um, you know, Matt and I are always looking for ways to make the podcast better going into 2020. So if anyone has any suggestions, please uh, don't be shy and, and let us know what you think that we can do to uh, make this more enjoyable for you and, and for everybody else. So um, happy new year to everybody. And we will talk to you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you.
for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.